This summer, back in June, my wife and I, we went to a pastor's conference up in Banff, Canada. I know, it's the cross I must bear. The struggle is real, no doubt about it. And we called home at some point in that. And at that time I had a 17 year old, a 15 year old, a 12 year old, an 11, a 10 year old and a four year old. So three girls and then two boys. So we're talking to them and you know, the girls are like, hey, have you seen anything cool? Did you eat anything good? Um, you know, is it fun up there? Did you go shopping? No, we're not shopping. We're not doing that. This is Banff. Everything's expensive. Get it on Amazon. It's much better. So it went through all those questions. Elijah talked to him. I think he just grunted. He's 10. He's a boy. Okay. And then Myron, my four-year-old gets on the phone. And this is what he said. He said, did you guys make any new friends? That's exactly what we did. I think maybe my wife cried. I did not cry. I had something in my eye, but I did not cry. (laughs) And I thought that is the question. So here we are, it's a beautiful spot, right? If you've been there, it's unbelievable. These giant rocks, you know, but what's more important, a giant rock or a brand new friend? Because the Bible says this, that when the mountains that are all around us and the big giant rocks that we see, when they are eroded to nothing by the wind and by rain and by sand and whatever. When the sun that fuels our solar system, when it's disappeared and it's gone, when all that stuff does not exist anymore, guess what still will exist? The person sitting next to you. Like we're immortal. That's what the Bible says, we're immortal. So would you spend time on a rock? or a person? It's a brilliant, brilliant question. And if you have been at Edgewater for any time, you know I address this subject of friends and stuff quite frequently, and here's why. Loneliness is becoming an epidemic in our culture now. Do you know that? Like it's runaway. And every study I've read, and I keep reading studies on it, says the younger you are, the lonelier you are. So Gen Z and millennials are by far the people that report, I am the loneliest. And it could be, I think, linked into the fact that younger people tend to spend or have grown up with more screen time. And I've shared this before. I think that I've shared it probably 20 times. Here's 21. I have a study from the 1950s that looked at the South. And when air conditioning and television were introduced to the South in the 1950s, what it did is it transformed that society and it pulled families out of community. That before TV and AC, a family, a guy would come home and he'd sit on his front porch, drink sweet tea and talk with his neighbors. But then air conditioning and television came and all of a sudden the most comfortable place was not your front porch. It's now inside watching TV, eating a TV dinner with your family in the air conditioned room. So it transformed the South. They've done studies on that. And now I think with technology, just individual screens, that's now taken the individual out of the family. 
right? So you go home and at home, it's not people sitting around watching TV anymore. It's people on their own personal devices doing their own thing, right? Like it's insane to me. Like I give advice I can't believe anymore. I'm like, please go home and watch TV together. Like, what did I just say? That's insane. At least you're together doing something, right? It's crazy. So there has been this this move and I am not anti-tech. Don't get me wrong. But I think you can look at people and see what technology does to them. So look at somebody who's on the phone talking to a real person. What will you see? Emotions, smile, laugh, animation. It's like a real conversation. Then watch that same person get off the phone and get on social media or whatever. What happens? Right? It's like they go from alive to zombie. So something, to me, there's a disconnect there. And I think more and more and more as we delve into this experiment that's never been done before in history, we're involved in the biggest experiment ever done in the history of the world. Billions of people are participating in it and no one knows what's gonna happen. We do not know the long-term effects of screen time, especially on young people. Like we don't know, but we're just gambling now. I think the, the longer we do this, the more important it is for us as the community of faith to be anchored in some important things. So in Galatians, so Wednesday night, we're gonna do Galatians 3, the end of it. It's brilliant. It answers the big questions of faith, how to move forward in your faith. It answers the questions of why do we have all these rules in the Old, Old Testament? You ever wonder that? Like why, what in the world? All those books I can't read, why are they there? Well, Paul is the theology behind them. But in chapter four, here's what Paul does. He's been theologian, theology hat on. He takes it off in chapter four, verse 12, and he puts on his pastor's hat. And you can see it in verse 12. Brothers, I beg you, or I entreat you. His tone changes. And what he does from verse 12 down to verse 20 is he begins to say, remember our friendship. Like you guys, I came to these churches in Galatia and you guys were friendly churches. I'm amazed at that. Now, why would Paul be amazed that they were friendly in church? Probably because he'd been to churches that were not friendly. Ever been to an unfriendly church? They're a bummer. Paul found that early in his ministry. He gets saved, he's following Jesus. He goes to the mother church of Jerusalem, goes down there in Acts chapter nine, verse 26. And guess what? They shut the door on him. They shun him. They don't let him in. So Paul knows what it's like to be rejected and have an unfriendly church. And he's like, you guys though, were friendly. And Paul is a man who knows how to make friends. He writes this book called Romans. And in Romans, at the end of it, this is a church he had never visited in a town he'd never been to, Rome. At the end of Romans, he greets 26 people in that church by name, in a church he'd never visited, in a city he'd never been to. Can you greet 26 people by name at a church you go to? Pretty amazing guy. Can I do that? Right? So he knows how to make friends. And here's what he does now. He's gonna, in these verses, he's gonna set out, I think, some very, very practical ways of being friendly. And as I look at our culture, 
and the direction we're headed, I think maybe there's no more important message for us to get, like how to be a community of Christ ambassadors bringing the friendliness that we found in Jesus to other people, all right? So we're gonna jump in, I'm gonna read these verses, and then we'll talk about two practical ways that Paul says you're a good friend. Verse 12, Galatians 4. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make, may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. So Paul I counted five, but we'll only do two. Paul gives five practical ways that this church had been friendly to him. I think these things apply not just when you're in church, but anywhere. Are we friendly? So notice number one, he says this. It's the, I, I actually ABCs of it. An A, look at verse 14, what happens? He comes there. My condition was a trial. You did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. Number one, friends are accepting. They accepted Paul. Now, I don't know what his trial was, but there was something that caused them to be, actually be put out by it, right? My condition was a trial to you. You didn't scorn that. You weren't angry at that. You actually would have tore out your own eyes and give them to, given them to me. He's accepting, he's accepting. That to me is one of the most important things because there's a news flash here. Nobody in this room is perfect. Do you know that? Every single one of us came in here with some kind of brokenness, some kind of trial, some kind of physical, mental, spiritual ailment, trial. No one's perfect. In fact, there's only been one perfect person in the history of the world. That perfect person? My wife, Charity. <laughs> She's close. So we have to know that. Paul comes, he goes, I came in brokenness. I came with problems. We know one of the problems was this. It's verse 15. He had some kind of eye problem. Like the only, we get a couple descriptions from history about what Paul looked like. And they said his eyes were these weepy, kind of goopy, pussy things. You know how hard that would be to talk to somebody? Have you ever been around a creature that has really, really goopy, gross eyes? I was for a while. I babysat my sister's chihuahua named Doogie. 
and it was this scrawny little dog that looked like someone had squeezed it and then his eye just went bink and then stayed that way. So it had these giant eyes and it would bark. So I'd put it in my study and in the morning I'd go wake Doogie up. And when Doogie woke up in the morning, just massive, goopy eyes just staring at you. And then always want to jump and like, and then like rub its eyes on you. So I'm like, ah, get away, go, go. It made it very hard to go back in and eat oatmeal because it's just like, oh, I'm fasting today. Thank you very much. Right? So imagine that your preacher is up there and just looking, just looking at him was a trial for you. But they received him as a messenger of God. He was broken and they received him, accepted him. And there's two sides to acceptance. The one side is being vulnerable. That's the one side. I think a lot of people live their lives, I call it the Halloween life. That every morning they get up and they put on their costume. And it's usually a super suit with a cape and a red ass. Like, I don't have any problems. I don't have any issues. I will go through this. I will put it all inside of me. I'm not gonna let anyone know me. And the reason why we put that Superman suit on is because we got bullet holes from past relationships that have hurt us. And now to protect ourselves from that, we just, I'm not gonna let anybody know me. I'm putting on my super suit. Paul was very different from that. If you read about Paul, especially in the book of Acts, he gives at the end of Acts, Acts 22 through 27, he gives his testimony five different times, over and over and over and over again. Do you know what Paul's testimony was? I killed Christians and then Jesus saved me. Like that's not a flattering testimony, is it? That's as vulnerable as it gets. I was a Christian killer and then Jesus saved me. Like, I don't think anyone in here has that bad of a testimony, right? Maybe one dude in back is like, yeah, I did. You got a problem with that, bud? Not at all. You're welcome here. Right? Why would Paul be so honest about how broken he was? Because he knew the Bible. And what the Bible says over and over about people that we elevate as heroes, they were really broken people, right? Abraham, hero of the faith, father of the faith, all these things. Was Abraham a good guy or a bad guy? Yes, right? He had great, incredible things. But guess what? He lied about his wife. And this is the lie about his wife. Go sleep with Pharaoh so I don't get killed. Tell him you're my sister and not my wife to spare my life. Woohoo! Has the Hagar thing, right? Moses, murderer. David, adulterer, murderer. Um, Solomon, idolater, thousand wives. Peter, denier, three times. Just go through the story. Just read your Bible. And what you see is this, really broken people in the Bible that God loved and used. When I read the Bible like that, and Edgewater started, here's the commitment I made. I said, I'm going to go up on stage and I'm never gonna tell stories that flatter me. I'm gonna tell stories that make me look like a fool. Like I'm gonna get out every stupid story I've ever done in my life and I'm gonna bring them out here and I'm gonna tell you about them unless you laugh at them. Here's the byproduct of that. It set me free. Like I am not worried about you being out on the town and someone hearing, oh, you go to Edgewater? Oh, did you know this about Matt? You're gonna be like, oh, that's it? Do you know what else he did? Let me tell you this story and this story and this story. And he was much more stupid than that. Are you kidding me? Man, that sets you free. You're not worried anymore. 
right? I don't have to put on a super suit. I'm not gonna, I don't do that because I wanna be free. You can be vulnerable. But I also know this, the reason that I can do that is because I understand something about acceptance. People email me every once in a while or they'll have a conversation with me and they'll be like, Matt, you seem confident. What's your secret? And I always say this, two things happened in my life that great, gave me incredible confidence. Number one is when I finally sunk into my soul, why God accepts me and likes me. And number two, 20 years ago, when the most beautiful woman ever said yes to me. Those two things have given me great confidence. Anyone can have number one. No one else gets number two, mine. <laughs> like when it finally sunk into my soul that God likes me, accepts me, loves me only because of Jesus. That was transformational. And because Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. That means God's liking, acceptance, and love for me is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and unchanging. And I'd heard that for years and years and years, but when it finally clicked in my mind, I went, oh my goodness. The most important opinion in the universe is for me and loves me and has accepted me. Everything else pales in comparison to that. That's a rock you stand on that gives you confidence, that you can be vulnerable and be like, I'm not worried about it. If you like me, great. If you're Church of Jerusalem to me, now nah, that's no good. But I have plenty of people that'll be Galatia for me as well. So it's, first part of acceptance is, are we vulnerable with people? The second part of it is, how do we deal with people when they're broken, when they're vulnerable? How do we do that? Do we let people be broken and vulnerable and then still accept them in their brokenness and vulnerability like they did here, where they literally said, your brokenness and your trial and your problems, they're an angel of God for us. The word angel just means messenger. That you coming in brokenness and you coming with that trial was a message from God for us. Do we receive people like that? Like your brokenness, I actually need that. That's a message for me. That'll help me grow. That'll help me understand God more. Do we receive people like that? Man, that's awesome. Or are we more like the church at Jerusalem? Shunning, ignoring people that are broken. Did you know this about chickens? If a chicken has a little wound on it that's bleeding, you know what all the other chickens will do to it? Peck it to death. I think sometimes people are like that, that when someone has a wound that is showing, all of a sudden the pecking starts and the gossip starts and the conversations, did you hear, did you know? Oh my goodness, right? And we start attacking that person in their brokenness. Man, don't be a chicken. Do not be a chicken. We're supposed to be something very, very different, right? Jesus was asked, how many times should I forgive somebody? Man, they're persistently breaking my trust. They're persistently broken. How many times do I have to sit there and deal with this? Seven times? Because I can keep track of that. I get a little list out, do my OCD thing on it. What does Jesus say? Mm -mm. Seven times 70, or depending on translation, 70 times. He's saying till you can't keep track anymore. 
you're persistently receiving them back as a friend. Proverbs 17, 17 says this, a friend loves at all times, not when they're good, not when they're making great money, making great decisions, agreeing with everything that you think they should be doing. It's all times when they're doing everything wrong. A friend says, I still love you. Because Jesus knows something about us. That persistent forgiveness allows people to actually change. The best example I have is this guy who came from the Korean War, really broken up. Became a homeless, drunk, persistent problem, plague. And everybody, he just burned through friends and family. They just all gave up on him. I can't deal with him anymore. Except for one dude who every year on this man's birthday would find him, clean him up, give him new clothes. And then on the day of his birthday, take him out to the best restaurant he could find and they would eat together. And he would just tell this guy, I'm not giving up on you. I love you. You're my friend. And the guy would go back to his bad habits, do it. And sometimes that required a plane trip and three or four days in a new city trying to just figure out where this guy had gone. And he kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it. And that guy eventually changed his life, turned it over to Jesus. And he has a name. His name is Brennan Manning. If you haven't read some of his books, they're brilliant. Some of my favorite books ever. He has ministered to millions and millions and millions of people. New York Times bestseller. Why? Because of one dude that said, I'm gonna forgive you seven times 70. I'm not gonna give up on you. I'm gonna keep coming back to you time and time again. Is there someone that you've given up on that maybe you shouldn't have? Because Jesus says this, I leave the 99 that are doing really well, they're in the pen, they're obeying, they're awesome, and I go after the one who's disobeying and running and causing all kinds of trouble. And I go after and get them back. That's acceptance. That's what this church demonstrated to Paul in the midst of his brokenness. You're a messenger from God for us. We actually needed your brokenness. Number two, not just acceptance. Look at verse 17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may may, may, may make much of them. Here's what has happened in this church. There's good people that came in and they came in with this idea that, hey, you have to do it our way. And if you do it our way, we become this little clique over here and we don't hang out with any of those bad Christians over there. So they shut them out, divided it up. As long as you're keeping our rules and following, they're called Judaizers and they were wrong, but they split the church in two those that did it according to their way and those that didn't do it that way. That still exists in church today. This idea that, hey, you have to like agree completely with us and, and be this just this way. And if you don't believe in the way that we believe, then we're not gonna ever have dinner with you or hang out with you at all. I think that's absolutely wrong. I think as believers, we're to be broad, inclusive, Always trying to make more and new friends. Just always moving it out. Just saying, trying to include more and more and more people as our friends. If you look at the life of Jesus, 
What was one of the accusations people always made of him? What was one of the biggest problems the religious people had of Jesus? Who his friends were. You hang out with the wrong people. You've got the wrong friends, Jesus. Like there's a tax collector there and there's a prostitute there and there's a drunkard there and there's a home. You can't hang out with those kind of people, Jesus. That was one of their biggest problems with him, who he made friends with. But Jesus was a guy who was always saying bigger, wider, more. And if you're a man in here, know this, and I've repeated this many times and I'll repeat it many more. Know this, the older you get as a man, the fewer friends you will make right? Old men don't make new friends is what the studies have shown. And I don't know when you get old, I'm 46, am I old? I don't know. It's always been 15 years older than me. So when I was 15, 30 was old. When I was 30, 45 was old. Now that I'm 46, 61's old. So I don't know actually what old is, but I'm nearing that. Like advertisers don't advertise to me anymore. They don't even care about me. They're like, no, you're, you're, who cares? 35 and under. Right? So I don't know when I'm old, but I'm getting close and I can already see it in my life. Like there has to be, almost be a plan that I execute to make sure that I'm being broad and making new friends. I see it in church, right? People come, they sit in the same seat. My seat, I have my seat. And these are my friends right here. And that part of that's good. We need a crew that we know well and absolutely, but we should always be saying, how can we make this bigger? How can we move the lines out bigger and bigger and bigger? When's the last friend you made? Didn't know them before. Now there's someone that you would say, yeah, they're my friend. Not just because they follow you on Facebook, like they're actually a friend. Six months? A year? Five years? 50 years? How long has it been since you made a friend? Well, Matt, that's my struggle. A lot of people struggle with making friends. Like, Every kid goes through that stage, right? My daughters, they've all gone through that stage. It, it just happens. My son, same thing. It's just a stage. So how do you make friends? Because if you look at the Bible, I think Jesus makes life super simple. It makes the priority really easy. He's like, there's two things that actually matter. Loving God with all your heart, and all your mind, and all your soul on one side. And then the other one, he says, and the other one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God and loving people. Like that brings life. And so we can be at church and be theologians and know everything about God. And that's great. And that's one side. But are, they, are we then becoming ambassadors of that kingdom and that love to other people? I think both are important. And so I actually changed my message yesterday morning. I had a bunch of more points and I just went real practical. So how do we make friends? Instead of, just theology, how do we actually walk out and become people that are friendly? How are we as a church, not just as a church, but in life, how are we friendly? How do we become friendly? Because our culture is moving away from that. So I have this acronym, it's LIFE. I think each letter stands for something. I think it's a way that you can just start walking out. How do I become friendly? Okay. So the L stands for linger. Linger. Because we don't linger anymore, do we? We don't have spaces that there used to exist where you'd have conversation with somebody new and maybe make a new friend. So I don't have a phone. I, I, I'll go shopping and I will uh, stand in line at a grocery store. And 10 years ago, I had all kinds of cool conversations. I met the coolest people. 
I don't have those anymore. Guess why? Shink. Candy crush. This is so important, man. I'm beating, I'm winning here, right? And even when the, the sometimes the checkout person like starts talking, they're, yeah, don't even make, it's insane to me. We don't linger anymore. Jesus in John chapter four goes to this well. Everybody leaves and he just hangs out there. He hangs out. And up comes this woman, majorly broken woman, majorly broken. And Jesus has this conversation with her and loves her and blesses her. And an entire village is changed because Jesus just lingered at a well for a little time. Do we linger? Like we set up that place back there, the cafeteria. When I say we, I should say Richard Camacho sets it up. I take credit for it. But the reason why we do that back there is so that we can stop you coming in for a second and leaving. Linger, just, just slow down for a second. Slow down. We changed the coffee, right? It used to be big aluminum pots that you just kind of get your coffee from and we changed it to pour over. And man, was there backlash over that. What have you guys done to my coffee? You guys are sellouts, come on. Right? Jesus drank coffee out of an aluminum pot. I don't think you guys believe in Jesus anymore. What is this? I'm leaving. Like, what was the reason? Like, you have to actually stop and wait. And our hope is you have a conversation with somebody and talk and you linger. That's what our hope is. Well, Matt, that's the problem. I, I go out there, I just don't know what to say. I don't know how to start a conversation. What, what do I say? After church, it's so easy. You just go back there and say, wasn't that such an awesome message today? That's how you start every conversation. It's done. <laughs> right? You linger. I think we actually have to start almost carving out time where you don't have anything to do. A margin. You have to linger at some places. So that's L-I, interest. Like be interested in people. The older I get, the less hobbies I have, and the more I find people actually interesting. Like their story and what they've done, like it's fascinating. And if you look at Jesus, when he interacted with people, he never just gave easy answers, right? They'd come up and be like, hey, who's my neighbor? What'd Jesus say? Well, if you draw a circle around your house of approximately 400 feet, those are your neighbors. No, what did Jesus give? Let me tell you a story. Dude was heading down to Jericho, got beat up. These three dudes walked by him. A guy named Samaritan, he came and helped him. That's your neighbor, right? He gives a story, talks. We should be interested in people. If the mountains are gonna disappear and the sun's gonna disappear and the only thing that's gonna last is people, then I should be investing in people. They should be my greatest interest. So when I go to lunch with somebody new or getting to know somebody, I always ask, tell me your story. Just tell me your story. And inevitably, there's some point of commonality. Hey, you grew up without a dad? Hey, me too. Oh, you work in Alaska? Oh, me too. Oh, you're interested in this? Oh, me too. Oh, you have kids? Oh, there's always somewhere that I connect. Because if you're willing to actually tell your story, you will connect. My, one of my marriage counseling things with, with young couples is this. There's gonna come a point in your marriage after five years or 10 years where you're gonna be like, man, we don't have anything to talk about anymore. Right? She asks me, hey, um, what's happening? What, what'd you do today? Well, you know, I woke up and I was kind of hairy, so I shaved. It's kind of smelly, so I took a shower and then I went to work and I came home. Right? That's kind of boring. What did you do today? Well, I woke the kids up and fed them breakfast and sent them off to school and they came home. Oh, okay. 
That can get very mundane and boring. So I say this, two people that are authentically open and vulnerable with everything that's happening in their life, they'll never lack anything to talk about. You'll begin to lack things to talk about when you stop talking about what actually matters in your heart and what's actually going on in you. But if we're really, really open, you'll always have something interesting to talk about. So that's L-I-F, find. Find a diverse crew. Don't flock to people that are exactly like you. Same demographic, same amount of money, same how, whatever it is. Find people that are very different than you because that's what Jesus did. When Jesus went out and selected, he prayed all night to select the people that he was gonna walk with for three and a half years, his disciples. Man, were they a diverse crew. Like you have one guy, he's a tax collector. So he worked for the occupying force that had destroyed Israel. They were the enemy and he worked for them. He's a betrayer, right? He's radical, far out there, whatever you wanna say, Antifa, whatever. He's that crazy dude out there. But on the other side is this guy, he's called a zealot. The zealots were the group of people that were stockpiling guns and ammunition to kill all the betrayers and the army of Rome, okay? Jesus chooses them both. Who's gonna have a problem as his disciples? Those two dudes. I'm almost sure he's like, you two are in a tent together, go figure it out. Because that's what we need. We need people outside of our bubble because if we don't do that, we end up demonizing them as something they're not. But when we get to know people that are indifferent, whatever it is, you find out while well, they're humans too. And Jesus's love extends to them as well. We should constantly be saying, I need to meet and hang out with people that are different than me. Like it's 1 Corinthians 9, 6 through 12, just brilliant. You guys were all these things, all these crazy things, but now you're all blood-bought saints of King Jesus. It's a brilliant passage. And so I love it that Edgewater is a place that's not homogenous at all. I love to see somebody sitting in the aisle that's just getting off drugs and they are fidgeting and they can't sit still and they're just all over the place. And they're right next to a CEO business dude who's just like, <laughs> everyone's all just checking his wallet. Yeah, okay, we're good, all right. That's so healthy. Because we need to know Jesus works in all these spheres and saves people from all these things, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, that we're all blood-bought saints. So find a crew that's diverse than you, look for them. And then lastly, E, earn it. Earn it. With friends, sometimes I think, and I'll make this mistake all the time. I try to make a withdrawal before I've made a good deposit. I start wanting to tell them things that I think they should do before I've really listened to them and walked with them and heard them. It's this classic saying, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And that's the way of Jesus. So Romans 5.8 says this, that God demonstrated his love towards us, that when we were sinners, Christ died for us. He made this giant deposit into my life when I was his enemy and against him and sinning and broken. And he said, I love you so much, Matt. I'm gonna die for you. I'm gonna make this big deposit in you right now. 
That's why John the apostle would say, we love him because he first loved us. See, the best friendships are friendships where I know I need to continually be making a deposit in this person's life of my time and my energy and whatever so that when necessary, when Jesus asks me to do something for him or call him to something, there's a withdrawal there to be made. Earn it. To linger, be interested, find a diverse crew, and then earn it. And when we do these things, what happens is there's all these gospel moments where friends become the angels of God. I've learned more about Jesus through friendships than just about any other way, through the saints, through people, through conversations. They become angels of God. And I know this. I know there are people sitting here right now that are intimidated by friendships. Because I think one of the big reasons is, and this is what I struggled with for a long time, I didn't understand who I was in Jesus. And because I didn't have that rock solid understanding of my acceptance in Jesus, then, then what happened to me is I took people's opinions too highly and people's reactions to me too highly. And they would cause me to go up and down. So I wanna just finish on one thing because we're gonna come up and we're gonna take communion. I wanna just read some verses in Colossians that tell you who you are as a saint of the king of the universe. And just let these words sink in because these are the words that transformed me. So listen to these, Colossians chapter one. And I may ask you a question or two. So listen to this, verse 12, Colossians one. giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints? I'll read it again. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. Who's qualified you? The Father. Nothing you did, the Father. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And you who are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, broken. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Who's holy and blameless and above reproach? I'll read it again. He has reconciled you by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Who's holy and blameless and above reproach? You are. You, holy, blameless, above reproach. I'm just reading the Bible. That's all I'm doing. All right, one more. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead 
And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How many of your trespasses have been forgiven? All of them. How do you do it? By canceling the record of the debt that stood against us. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That record you think that God has, like a, like a folder where he's got all these things against you. Guess what the Bible says? Been canceled. There's no record left. We come to Jesus and say, forgive me again. He's like, again? There's no record. There's no record. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Now here's the key, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Don't let people's judgment or their opinion throw you away or throw you off. Why? Because the Father's qualified you. He's reconciled you. He's forgiven you. He's redeemed you. He's presented you holy and blameless before his presence. He's taken whatever record we think might exist of all of our sins and all of our wrongdoing, he's taken it and put it in the shredder and it's gone. That's why. So when you come to the table, know this. You are invited to the table of the king of the universe because you're his family and he wants you here. And when you get the gospel, when it finally sinks into your heart, it transforms you. People's opinions or judgments of you lose their ability to send you on that roller coaster because you've got the greatest opinion ever. And it says you're holy and blameless and accepted. Come and eat at my table. And so Jesus today, as we have the opportunity to dine with you, I pray, Lord, for those in this room that feel they're unworthy. May they know if they've placed their faith in the finished work of the cross, the defeat of evil, dark powers, the reconciling of us back to you. May they know that they are holy and blameless and without reproach that you, the Father, has qualified them to dine, to feast. And may you give us the faith to believe that. It takes no faith to believe the lies of the enemy. May we have the faith to believe what Colossians 1 and 2 says that we are. Blood, bought, holy, blameless, forgiven, sons and daughters of the king of the universe. That's who we are. And may our identity give us the stability to reach out and forgive because we've been forgiven, to reach out and to reconcile because we've been reconciled, to reach out and to offer grace and mercy because we've been given grace and mercy, to reach out and to get rid of bitterness because you've touched us and cleansed us from our bitterness.
So may we know who we are and may we go and live like it. And I ask this in your name, amen.